I want to begin with a dream. I once had a dream in which I met God at a cocktail party. You might not have recognized the God that I met at the cocktail party because she was an enormous pregnant woman glowing with light. At a certain point during the party, God gave me a gift. It was an old-fashioned wrought iron lantern. It was unlit. When I woke up, I was, of course, delighted to have met God in a dream. And in fact, the dream was one of the many factors that propelled me toward rabbinical school. It was especially meaningful to have been given a lantern, a symbol of radiance, wisdom, illumination, truth. It didn't occur to me until much later to ask why the lantern was unlit. Then I was worried. Was the lantern unlit because I had not yet discovered my true purpose in life? Was it unlit because I had failed to do something I was supposed to do? Was it unlit because I was not going to succeed in my mission? Or was it unlit because I had something to learn about the power of darkness? Was there something about an unlit lantern that made it even more powerful than a lit one? And it's this question, the question of the power of darkness, that I want to discuss with you this evening. This week is Parshat Bo, the Torah portion of the ninth and tenth plagues, in which a great deal of night and a great deal of darkness appears. And I want to tell you the story of three moments of darkness and consider with you what all this night and all this darkness is for. The first moment I want to share is the night of the tenth plague, the ninth plague. This is part of the larger Exodus narrative. God is in the terrifying process of convincing Pharaoh and his people to let the Hebrew slaves leave Egypt. And for this ninth plague, God says to Moses, hold out your arm toward the sky, that there may be darkness upon the land of Egypt, a darkness so thick it can be touched. The Hebrew is vayamesh choshech, a darkness that you can feel, a tangible darkness, a darkness you can push your hand up against. And for three days, this thick darkness descends on Egypt. And an ancient midrash, an ancient rabbinic commentary, Exodus Rabbah, adds a mythic dimension to this darkness. The rabbis ask the question, from where did this darkness come? Where does the darkness come from? Rabbi Judah said, from the darkness above, Hoshech Shamala, the cosmic darkness, the darkness of the stars. But Rabbi Nechemia has another opinion. He says this is the darkness of Gehinom, right? the darkness of hell, the demonic darkness, the darkness of the underworld. Now, both of these kinds of darkness evoke fear, and both invite inner journey. However you imagine the darkness, it comes from another world. Right? It's otherworldly. It's as if the whole land of Egypt has entered the underworld. The people have been plunged into a constant night, which they can touch. And the Midrash adds, an Egyptian who, sta- who was sitting at the time that the darkness fell could not stand up. And one who was standing could not sit down. And one who was lying down could not rise. But wherever one of the Hebrews went, light would follow them. In order, the Midrash adds, that they would see the treasures inside the Egyptian homes. So let's imagine this 
in a kind of dreamscape. And let's imagine ourselves as both the Egyptians and the Hebrews, because in a dream we're everybody. So the Egyptians can't get up from their seats. So that's like a dream when you're paralyzed, right? You can't move. You're unable to escape your fears, right? They pursue you and you can't run away. The darkness is showing you what's really under the surface of the calmness of your life. Right? That you can't run away from the things that you have hidden from yourself, including that you are enslaving other people. Right? The darkness even shows you all the ways that you have refused to see. Right? All the things that you have not seen now have become physical. Right? That truth that you have been blind has been made manifest. Now let's imagine that we're the Hebrews. So in this Midrash, the Hebrews are entering the houses of their oppression, of, of their uh, slave uh, taskmasters. No one can see them, but they have light and they can see everything that's there in those houses. And the Midrash tells us that later the Hebrews go back and say, could we have some of these things from your houses? And of course the Egyptians have to give them the things because they know what's there. But I want to suggest right, that the darkness also allows them to approach their own places of suffering and take in what's really there. Right? In the Midrash, the treasures that they see are silver and gold. But we might think about the treasure that they see in the darkness as another kind of treasure. Somali mom, who is a woman who was an abandoned child and an enslaved prostitute in Cambodia, is now one of the preeminent rescuers of enslaved women and children prostitutes in the world. A modern day Moses, if you will. And she writes, what you have learned from your experience is worth much more than gold. If you have a house, it can burn down. Any kind of possession can be lost, but your experience is yours forever. Keep it and find a way to use it. So I want to suggest that one possible reading of this plague of darkness is that the darkness spread over Egypt allows the Hebrews to recover their own memory and experience. They have a moment to be unseen, to not be the victims, to not be the object of abuse. And that's the first moment that they have to revisit their experience, retell their story, reconstruct a different image of who they are. The walk around the Egyptian houses is an experiencing of their past. And in that fluidity of the darkness, they can make a new sense of their identity. And that's the treasure they take out of Egypt. The first gift of darkness is the making of a new self. The second moment of darkness I want to tell you about is the 10th plague. We usually know this plague as the killing of the firstborn. God sends the angel of death throughout the land of Egypt to kill every Egyptian who was first born of their parents. Adults, children, infants. This plague also takes place in the darkness at midnight. It takes place while the Israelites are having their Passover dinner. And it takes place for every Egyptian family from the most powerful to the least. It is intended to terrify Egypt into surrender. Many of us, in the contemporary world can't read this story without seeing it as an abuse of power. This moment makes us begin to be uncomfortable even with the story of our own liberation. Feminist theologian Kathleen Sands writes, what is true for people must also be true for our deities. Only the powerless are innocent. 
God's using power to free the Israelites isn't just snakes and frogs anymore. By the 10th plague, both God and the slaves are no longer innocent. And our lack of innocence, even as victims, becomes apparent. God and Pharaoh both have the power to kill. And we have to determine what we think of that story. But I want to read the story of the 10th plague in another way also. Roger Kamenetz, who's the author of The Jew and the Lotus, wrote a book about dream interpretation called The History of Last Night's Dream. And in this book, he writes that in a dream, the child is always the soul. And if the child is the soul, then the death of the firstborn is an intimation of the death of the soul of Pharaoh and his people. And it's important to remember, if this is a dream, that we are also Pharaoh and his people. The story of the 10th plague is in part a way of saying that the oppression of others results in the death of the self. Remember that the Egyptians began by throwing babies into the Nile. Right? And now that action has unfolded itself back on them. If we are all connected, harming one another is harming the self. Right? Because in, in, the, in the full world, there's no real separation between us and them. Darkness teaches us that all of us come from the same primordial, undifferentiated well of being. And that's part of why we like looking in the depths of the ocean or up at the night sky. We see that place of unity from which we came. That oneness has a claim on us, a claim of mutual responsibility. And that mutual responsibility is part of the underground message of this parasha. The second gift of the darkness is the oneness beyond the self. The third moment of darkness happens for the Israelites during their midnight Paschal meal. The people are instructed to slaughter a lamb, to make a sacred meal, and to eat it with their shoes on and their staffs in hand as if they are about to leave the house. They don't know that they are actually about to leave the house. They have to paint the door, the posts, and the lintels with the blood of the lamb. At midnight, in the darkness, the Egyptians come banging on the door and say, get out, leave Egypt. And now the people have to grab their unrisen bread, their families, and very little else, and go through this bloody doorway into the darkness. And that night in the Bible is called Leil Shimurim, a night of watching a night of vigil. Now, if you told Jung, I dreamed of a bloody doorway, what would he say? Well, he might say that this is a birth, right? that this is a dream about origins and beginnings. And it's a scary birth, because it is a birth into the unknown. That makes it dangerous and unpredictable. When you liberate someone, you create unknowns. You don't know what they will do. A vigil is something you hold over something that is not yet complete, right? where the outcome is not yet clear. The third gift of darkness is the unknown. The formless, potential, possibility, what might happen. And it is a scary gift, 
but it is the greatest gift we have because it is identical with the gift of freedom. Self-liberation and the liberation of others is our duty, not only because of our mutual responsibility, but also because it makes creativity possible. When I was in rabbinical school, I lived in Jerusalem for a year. It was a hard year for me. I was in a country that didn't quite feel like my own. I was struggling with Jewish law as it related to women and to the other. I was ending a marriage. I was trying to become a rabbi. At one point during that year, I went walking in Hezekiah's tunnel, which is an underground water channel made by the biblical king Hezekiah 2,700 years ago. This is not a legend. There's an inscription in the tunnel. We know the king actually made this tunnel. It is very long. You walk hip deep in water the whole way, and it is very, very dark. And I was expecting to be scared, but I wasn't scared. I felt like I was walking in God's fallopian tube. <laughs> in a place that had existed before the conception of creation. A place of endless potential. A dark channel that would lead to some universe that I could not yet imagine. And I felt there the teachings of darkness. The creativity, the freedom, the ability to reflect and the merging with everything. That was a moment of deep peace for me. And when I came out into the sunshine at the pool of Siloam, I felt that I had had a kind of rebirth. Perhaps I had some intimation of what the Israelites felt as they walked through that bloody door into freedom. And I think that might be the message of my dream with the unlit lantern. While the light of a lantern can represent wisdom and truth and homecoming, perhaps we need darkness to give us the space to discover that we could light the lantern. We could choose to see and feel and know and struggle and become and liberate. Darkness teaches us about potential, about what is yet for us to form. And it gives us the universal ground, the cosmic womb or void or place of origin from which to reach for that potential. Taking a page from the Talmud, we might say, great is darkness, for darkness leads us to the search for light. May the teachings of Parashat Bo bring us all rebirth and redemption and freedom at this season of very long nights. Shabbat Shalom. Yeah.